Man, you people can sing. Wow. And thank you, Brian, for such rich, gospel-saturated songs. Um, so, so good. As will our passage be this morning. And so kind of with that, just my heart for us this morning. Um, I know that most of the people in this room are believers, and I hope that what our passage has to say strengthens your faith. But I also have to believe that in a room like this, there are those who have not put their faith in Christ And man, I just pray with all my heart that you both heard through the singing and see in our passage the love and grace and forgiveness that has been lavished upon you and that you would consider this morning um, the invitation to trust in the one who came to set you free. And I hope you see that clearly this morning. Uh, We're going to transition into chapter two of Paul's letter to Timothy. But sometimes chapter divisions are not always very helpful because they can unintentionally interrupt the author's thought. As we know, in the original letter, there weren't chapters and verses. We've just added those for our own sake. And I think we see some of that transition this morning. Um, In fact, if you have headings in your Bible, uh, somebody tell me what it says at the beginning of chapter 2, if you have a heading in your Bible. Instructions for, for worship. Okay, mine says a call to prayer, okay? Mine says a call to prayer, which seems reasonable because prayer appears to be a primary focus in this section of Scripture. But I want to suggest to you that it's actually not the main point. That instead, it's more of a means for Paul to continue to highlight the scope of salvation that he is working tirelessly to make clear in his letter so far. And I say that because of of the context that in which this is written. His primary concern, as we saw from the very beginning, were these divisive teachers who were creating chaos in, in the Ephesian church. And he, so he leaves Timothy there in Ephesus with instructions to, to put things in order. Because these strange doctrines, these false teachings did not line up with the glorious goodness. They, they talk about these strange myths and, and genealogies that somehow limited the scope of salvation. We'll see there that, that it was kind of a, salvation was more of a privileged position that only applied to a select few, and it, was, it seemed to be secured by this strict adherence to the law. And, and as we'll see in our passage this morning, it likely left out Gentiles altogether. They simply didn't qualify. They were not in the lineage or the genealogy that leads to salvation. So last week, Paul pulls back the curtain on their deception, and he begins by sharing his own testimony. By helping us see that his strict adherence to the law actually led him far away from Jesus Christ. He rejected his need for a savior. And he he sought to destroy the ministry of the church. By his own admission, he was a blasphemer, a, a persecutor, a violent aggressor who was rescued by God's mercy and grace. And Paul told us last week that that mercy and grace that was extended to him is made available to everyone. There are no boundaries 
when it comes to God's grace and forgiveness. Remember, we sang it last week. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is what? More. Always more. Now in chapter 2, I think what Paul is doing here is he's, he's using the topic of prayer to press into his drive to make the main point. So prayer is kind of the context, but salvation is still the main point. Paul wants our prayers to be gospel-informed so that they align with God's heart. They're consistent with Christ's work and they are faithful to our calling. So before we look at God's word together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we do open your word, we want to do so humbly. We want to sit under its authority, its direction and purpose for our life. And Father, if we've come to a place of faith in you, I pray that this strengthens that faith, that it secures us in the truth that you have set forth for us this morning. Father, if there are those here this morning who have not put their faith and trust in you, and they've probably heard this story a hundred times before, or maybe never at all, but either case, Lord, I pray that they would accept that invitation of great love and forgiveness that you seem so adamant for us to hear, especially in this letter. It just keeps coming up. And so, Lord, help us to abandon ourselves to your goodness and grace that has been lavished on us through faith in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. All right, turn, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'd love for you to read along with me as I begin in verse 1, where Paul writes, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Since salvation is not reserved for some special group of people, Paul says that Our prayers should be equally unhindered. He says at the end of verse one, they should be made on behalf of all people. In other words, leave no one out, including kings and those who are in authority. And I think he says that because these are very likely people who were not on the prayer list for the Ephesian church. And very possibly they're not on ours as well. Because praying for governing authorities at least sometimes feels like you're you're praying for the good of your enemy. (laughs) That certainly was the case for Paul's audience because they were ruled by pagan kings within a Roman empire, men who were known, well-known for their unjust treatment of Christians and Jews. So Paul was essentially praying, saying, pray for the salvation of those who sin against you. And Jesus would say the same. In fact, he did. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, he says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. 
These are prayers that are in alignment with God's heart for the world and his mercy towards us. Paul says it's important because it leads to a, a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And I think there's a couple of ways that you can interpret this because at first glance, it kind of sounds like we should pray for governing authorities so that we can have quiet and peaceful lives, knowing that a good leader produces peaceful societies. Sounds logical. But if we're honest, it's incredibly selfish. It's basically saying, I'm really not worried about your well-being. I just want you to make my life better. I'll pray for your leadership so that I can have a comfortable life. And in its context, we know that that cannot be true. We have to remember that Paul is using prayer to promote sound doctrine. It is the context to press into his main point because the false teachers were suggesting that salvation only applies to a certain group of people. Which not only creates division in the church, if you think about it, it points a finger of judgment towards those who are outside the church. It promotes what I call an us versus them mentality. And we don't have any trouble imagining what this looks like, do we? Because we see it all throughout our world. We live in a secular society filled with factions. And even our religious communities are divided. We have the religious right, the liberal left, the moderate, the socialist, the progressive, the reform, the Calvinist, the charismatic, the legalist, the Protestant, the Catholic, the evangelical, and the list goes on and on and on. And much like we see in our passage, we end up many times in fruitless discussions trying to argue which one is better than the other, which only leads to narrow-minded people who have very shallow prayers. So Paul is teaching us that our prayers need to be gospel-informed. And since God's mercy has no limits, then neither should our prayers. Our prayers and petitions and requests should not exclude anyone. They should be filled with thanksgiving because salvation has been made available to everyone. That's why he says in verse 3, this is the kind of prayer that is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. It is good in the eyes of the one who saved us. Because as we see in verse 4, God desires all men, all women, all children to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It says in Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to some men? No. To all men, God's grace knows no boundaries and neither should our prayers. Jesus reminds us in John 3, 17, for God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. You see, I'm convinced that Paul is not telling us to pray for governing authorities so that they can promote peace in the world. I'm convinced he's telling us <laughs> 
that peace should be the primary responsibility of the people of God within the church of God. And I think for far too long, we have relied on our governments to do our job. True peace is only possible through faith in Christ alone. We pray for our governing authorities knowing that the gospel is the only true source of peace for the world in which we live. Paul wants us to see that gospel-informed prayers lead to gospel-shaped lives. It changes how we see the world around us. It's no longer us versus them. When our hearts are wide open, we do not close our doors to anyone because we want everyone, just like it says in the heart of God, we want everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Do you see how that aligns with God's heart for the world? Look at how he continues in verse five. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. If you were to look at this passage, I would encourage you to count how many times the word all is in just these few verses. It seems that Paul is trying to make his point very clear. He began by urging us to pray according to God's heart, and now in these two verses, he encourages us to pray according to Christ's work. He begins by saying, for there is one God. And I think for many in his audience, it probably brought to mind what was known as the Shema. It was an ancient Jewish prayer that was prayed every morning and every evening of every day. It's based on Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Unfortunately, I think the, the false teachers got stuck on the first part pridefully proclaiming the Lord is our God, as if they had some kind of exclusive right to God's salvation as a privileged people. So Paul counters this false claim by saying that Christ's work was sufficient for all mankind. John 3.16, the second part says, so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Romans 10.9, for if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. As John says in chapter one, verse 12, for as many as received him, to them he gives the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That, my friends, is the glorious good news of the gospel. Paul says, for there is one mediator between God and man and it's Jesus. He alone brings reconciliation to a relationship that has been destroyed by sin. Sin that, like a pandemic, which we're very familiar with, has spread throughout all of humanity. Paul says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. 
we need to understand it's a sickness that, that produces selfishness within the heart of mankind. A disease where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And this sinful rebellion has created a barrier between us and God. So Jesus came to bring reconciliation to the world. He is the mediator, the only one who can restore what sin has destroyed. And he did that by taking on human flesh. We see that Paul emphasizes this point when he talks about the mediator is the man, Christ Jesus. Right? He speaks to that in his letter to the Philippians when he says, Jesus, being the very nature, by very nature, God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In our passage this morning, Paul reminds us that that, that death on the cross was a ransom for our sins. Jesus substituted his sinful life to cleanse our corrupt soul. His payment released us from the power of sin and death. As Tim Keller reminds us, even if our sins were 10,000 times worse than they were or already are, Jesus' mercy is still magnificently more. His forgiveness knows no limits and neither should our prayers. No one, okay, don't miss this. No one is unsavable. No one is beyond the boundaries of God's grace. So parents, continue to pray for your wayward kids. And I know it breaks your heart and it breaks mine but no one is outside the boundaries of God's grace. Parents or kids, if, if your parents don't know Christ, then keep praying for them because it's never too late to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Pray for those who are lost in addiction. Pray for marriages that are falling apart. Pray according to Christ's work on the cross, knowing there are no boundaries to his saving grace, amen? Look at how he continues in verse seven. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. So again, we pray according to God's heart, We pray according to Christ's work. And now I believe Paul's talking about how we pray according to our calling. We talked about this last week, right? We are ambassadors for Christ. We are ministers of reconciliation. And we should pray according to our calling. And I think that's what Paul's point is here in verse seven. We pray for others based on what we ourselves have received from Christ. These are gospel informed prayers. They are filled with the personal experience of a love that knows no end, a forgiveness 
that has no limits, mercies that are new every morning, an ever-abundant grace. Our prayers are filled with this reality as brothers and sisters in Christ who are part of God's family. And I want you to notice how Paul specifically highlights his ministry to the Gentiles. And the reason I bring that up is because of what I said earlier, and I believe that this is a a group of people who are being left out of this false doctrine being taught within the Ephesian church. They're not included because they don't fit within the lineage, the, the genealogy of the Jewish people. They are outside. So Paul is telling the truth when he identifies that that's a lie. And he made that clear when he wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 3, verse 6. And he says, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel, which I am made a minister. Listen, people, this is good news because this room is filled with Gentiles. So this is a message for us. Paul's prayers are aligned with his ministry And the same should be true for us. So he writes in verse 8, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And when Paul says men, here specifically he's talking about the males in the Ephesian church. He'll speak to the women next week, but for now he's speaking directly to the men. He's saying that gospel-informed prayers should be the primary purpose within our spiritual leadership. It's part of the defense against false doctrine. And perhaps this was something that the men in this church had neglected, which is why they're in this mess to begin with. Instead of humble prayer, they stirred up strife with fruitless discussions. Instead of being united in prayer, their arguments created division. They wanted to be people of influence, remember? People who have have authority instead of being humble before the Lord in prayer. So Paul says they should pray in in every place. When I read that, the first thing that came to my mind was the, the second part of that Deuteronomy 6 passage where it says, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk in the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. (laughs) I believe he's making the point and we use this a lot of time in in talking about discipleship within the family that, that you should always be aware of every possible teachable moment. From the moment you rise up to the moment you go to bed, from inside your home to outside in the world. And I think we can take this same principle and apply it to prayer. Paul says pray in every place because there's never a place where prayer is not a priority. Men, prayer is how we love our wives. Prayer is how we lead our families It shapes how we see our workplace. It motivates us towards ministry. Prayer is a measure of our dependence upon God. And so don't miss this. The less we pray, the more we are trying to do life without him. Remember, gospel-centered prayer 
shapes gospel-centered lives. Paul says, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And I don't think his main point here is, is specifically a posture. I think he's giving us an image because lifting up holy hands is an act of surrender. It's, it's hands open wide as opposed to wrath and dissension that are clenched with fists filled with pride. Lift up holy hands in humble surrender. Prayer is a posture of dependence. It is a act of humility. So that we serve others with the same self-sacrificing love that Christ gives to us. Men, don't miss this. We lead best the more we spend time on our knees in prayer. And so I just hope that for all of us, that, that it motivates us towards this same idea of gospel-centered prayers. Prayers that are alignment with God's heart, consistent with Christ's work, and faithful to our calling. May it be evident in every place, in our marriages. In fact, I'll say this. I have never counseled a marriage in trouble that has consistently spent time in prayer together. It's never happened. In fact, more often than not, I will very early in the conversation ask the question, do y'all pray together? 100% of the time, the answer is no. So be faithful in prayer in your marriage. Be faithful in prayer with your families. Be faithful in prayer in your small groups. To me, when I hear every place, this is the place that comes to mind for me (laughs) because it's where we get out of our homes and we get connected with other people and we spend time praying for one another, seeing life outside of our own selves. And, and, And so let me encourage you to be involved in a small group, to get connected with other believers. It should happen in our conversation. We've talked about this, just this idea of spontaneous prayer. I want to see us being more and more willing to have a conversation with someone who says, man, it has been a hard week. And before they even know what happens next, you say, do you mind if I just pray for you right now? And just take the time to do that. And here's what I think this gospel-centered prayer looks like. It's being honest about where we are, being vulnerable with one another, but being very clear about what Christ can accomplish. Prayers that protect us from false doctrine are always centered on God's truth. Prayers that remind us of his love and grace so that we don't get overburdened by by guilt and shame. But let's also look beyond ourselves to the world around us. Let's pray for our community. Let's pray for our country. Let's pray for the world. Don't just be prayerful for our leaders to make our life better, but pray for their life to be transformed through faith in Christ alone. Because the gospel is the only means to find true and lasting peace in the world. Let's pray for ministries. Let's pray for our missionaries, cultivating hearts that look outside of our inner circle. Because at the end of the day, we all have one thing in common. We all desperately need Jesus. 
I love what Job writes in Job 9, 33. He asks this question. He's struggling because he's in this predicament where his life isn't making sense and, and he's trying to be reconciled to God. And he says, if only there was someone to mediate between us, between us and God, someone to bring us together. I have good news for you this morning. There is. And his name is Jesus. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. So may we all collectively surrender our hearts to him in prayer. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we do want to come to you with that heart. And what good news. Because very often we come to you, or maybe better said, we don't come to you. Because we feel burdened by the sin that so easily entangles us. We feel ashamed. We feel guilt. But when we see that the gospel informs our prayers, then we can come to you and find forgiveness and grace in our time of need. Father, we can come to you when we need hope in a hopeless situation. We can come to you when we're fearful and you can give us peace. Father, we come to you for all things because through you all things have been made possible. Father, we love you and we thank you. And we pray this morning that as we recognize the great invitation of salvation that we would come with humility in understanding the goodness of what has been given to us through the ransom that you've made for you did not come to be served but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for us we pray this in your name amen let's stand and sing together I think you will agree with me that this is a message that we need to hear in our world today that is so filled with division, that salvation has been made available to all mankind, and the invitation is for all to come and to see the salvation and forgiveness and grace and mercy that is found through faith in Christ alone. And one of the practical ways that I would encourage us specifically as a church family, especially this time of year, we have a lot of new faces, people trying to find a church home people trying to see if there's a place that they might fit, that you would look outside of your familiar circle to someone you haven't met and just go introduce yourself. Uh, to me, we, that's part of what gospel-informed prayers lead to gospel-shaped lives, which always look outside of our circles to the needs of someone else. Isn't that right? So let's be that kind of a people as a church family. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this church family who has been so good to reach out to me in all my weakness and frailties with love and acceptance. I just pray, Lord, that we can foster that in our prayers and in our lives together and even in the world in which we live, that we would be known as your disciples because of our love for one another and our love that extends to the uttermost parts of the world a forgiveness that knows no limits, a grace that knows no end. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.